Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I'm your host, Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour... New report details human rights abuses in South Sudan. UN condemns Uganda for passing controversial anti-gay law. And forensic report reveals massive looting of public funds in Malawi. In economics, Nigerian court orders security agencies not to arrest suspended central bank governor. And in sports news, the race for Zimbabwe's Football Association presidency hots up. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. The U.S. government says it's reviewing its relationship with Uganda's government. This in reaction to a decision by Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni to sign strict anti-gay legislation into law. Kampala's heavily dependent on American assistance programs focused on fighting HIV-AIDS. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry says assistance programs are meant to uphold anti-discrimination policies. The United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Navi Pillay, has denounced an anti-homosexuality law in Uganda. Pillay says the bill, which was signed into law by President Yoweri Museveni yesterday, will institutionalize discrimination against lesbians, gay, bisexual and transgender people. UN spokesperson Martin Isoki. Ms. Pillay said that uh, disapproval of homosexuality by some can never justify violating the fundamental human rights of others. She added that the law is formulated so broadly that it may lead to abuse of power and accusations against anyone, not just LGBT people. She also expressed deep concern that the law could threaten the critically important work of human rights defenders in the country. She urged the government to take immediate steps to ensure that uh, human rights defenders are not prosecuted for their advocacy. Libyan police have found seven Egyptian Christian shot executions style on a beach in the eastern part of the country, marking the second such killing since the beginning of the year. The bodies were discovered yesterday with gunshots into the, to the heads in the volatile Garutha region, a few kilometers from the city of Benghazi. Spokesperson of Benghazi's Joint Security Operation Room, Colonel Ibrahim Al-Shara says the victims aged range between 17 and 25 and a group has claimed responsibility for the gruesome killings. United Nations Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has once again called for non-violence and urged all Ukrainians to express their differences peacefully and through dialogue. More than 22 people were killed in violent clashes between riot police and protesters in the capital Kiev last Tuesday, prompting senior UN officials to decry the excessive use of force. Jocelyn Sambira reports. Demonstrations began in the country in November 2013 to press for closer integration with the European Union. In a statement released on Monday, Mr. Ban said he continued to closely follow the rapidly unfolding events in Ukraine and remained in continual contact with key actors to support a peaceful way forward for Ukraine. 
Mr. Ban also sent his senior advisor, Robert Surrey, to Ukraine to assure the people of the support of the UN and the wider international community. Mr. Surrey met with the new Speaker of the Parliament, Mr. Alexander Turchinov, and conveyed the Secretary General's message of solidarity. The Director General of Immigration and Immigration and Rwanda has started capturing biometrics of all foreigners residing in Rwanda in order to be used with electronic resident ID cards. The exercise kicked off in the capital, Gigali, but will continue in other sites across the country. Foreigners have welcomed the news, saying it will enable them to access different services faster, such as banking and acquiring driving permits. Head of Field Inspection and Enforcement at the Directorate General of Immigration and Immigration, Mugabu Bosco, says the ID cards will be valid the same period as the visas issued to the foreigners. Validity depends on the validity of your permit to stay in Rwanda. If it is one year, it will be one year. If it is two years, it goes for two years. So it goes as per the permit that you're given. All foreigners who are residing or working or have any other business doing in Rwanda are entitled. Those for visiting are not issued the ID, foreigners' ID cards. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We welcome your feedback on Africa Rise and Shine. So today we invite you to send us your views on the passing of the anti-gay law in Uganda. You can tell us. You can call us on plus two seven one two three nine five zero five one zero. Email us at info channelafrica dot org or send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. You can also get a hold of us at our Twitter handle, which is at Channel Africa One. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. In our top story, a new United Nations report released yesterday outlines the human rights abuses committed by both sides in the conflict that erupted in South Sudan at the end of last year, including rapes, mass killings and torture, and warned that civilians in the world's youngest nation are continuing to be targeted. The report provides an initial account of human rights violations and atrocities perpetrated during the hostilities that engulfed South Sudan between the 15th of December in 2013 and the end of January in 2014, as documented by a fact-finding mission. For more on this, Jose Khodingake spoke to Andy Atta Asamoa, a research researcher on African peace, conflicts and security issues at the Pretoria-based Institute for Security Studies. I think that is important because that is the main reason why South Sudan is where it is today. But if you look at the details of the announcement that was made by the government, happenings point to the fact that there was confusion within the presidential guards rather than a planned attempt to try and take over the government, which would have amounted to a coup. And so far, all the details that have been released points to the fact that the confusion was as such and then went along, you know, escalation of the conflict along ethnic lines within the army. And then several soldiers died and it escalated from there. 
there is no indication so far that there was a coup or a planned attempt to take over the country. So far as per the details and the narrative provided by the government, it is only the president and his people who still believe there was a coup. But it's important that we understand whether it's a coup or not, because as of now, we still have about four politicians who are largely dissenting views within the SPLM who are being held in detention. And if it is proven to be a coup, then the government of South Sudan is likely to try them for treason. But so far, it appears there was no coup. Now, what started as a political squabble, let's say, has now escalated into ethnic violence. Why is this so? Have there always been tensions between the Dinka and the No, or is this something that is just coming up now? Well, let me begin by saying that if you look at the history of South Sudan, there are so many ethnic groups, and many of these ethnic groups have their own, you know, prejudices against each other. But the biggest they have is, you know, the tension between the Nuer and the Dinka, which goes back to 1991. And uh, in 1991, there was a context for the leadership of the SPLM and SPLA, which led to what they called the Ball Massacre. Thousands of Dinkas were massacred, and that is blamed on Rick Marshall and his people. And it is one defining moment in the history of South Sudanese. So that moment and the loss of lives that marked the Ball Massacre has remained a key defining moment and a key defining factor in the tension between the two ethnic groups. So since then, even though they've always, you know, the two groups have always fought against the North and together in the same political party in the same group, the definition of unity in the South hasn't become really solid. Because for a long time, they spent a lot of time trying, you know, to fight against a common enemy, which was the North, and now the North is not there. So we are now seeing all the fault lines and cleavages that existed in the South all these years emerging. And that is why it was fairly easy for the conflict, which was practically, you know, a context at the political level within the party to easily translate to become a national issue and to snowball from the capital to other parts of the country. Because one can philosophically say that, you know, the bush was dry enough and that the spark that happened was as a result of the political contest was just a spark which set the whole situation ablaze. And now here we are where even though a ceasefire is supposed to be in place, and I mean the two sides are in Ethiopia trying apparently to resolve the conflict, we still get reports of deadly clashes between the rebels and the army, which is resulting in countless deaths and thousands of people fleeing. Why is this? Have those fighting not got the message from their leaders that there is supposed to be a ceasefire in place and talks are continuing to resolve issues? Now, I think the primary reason is that, you know, the rebels, if I could call them like that, but at the negotiations, they are called SPLA in opposition. They have some fundamental concerns. One is that, you know, the politicians who were detained should be released. There were 11 initially. Seven of them have been released. They were handed over to Kenya, and they are supposed to join the talks in Addis Ababa, accepted. But four of them are being held and four of them are being held on the grounds of treason. And defining it as a treason implies 
you know, accepting the narrative of a coup in the country. Now, the rebels are insisting that those people should be released as a precondition for the next stage of the talks. That has not happened. So increasingly what we are finding is that what they ask for is not really being honored as such. Secondly, they are also insisting that some of the allies aligned, regional allies aligned with President Salva Kiel, particularly Uganda, should pull out from the conflict that is happening. That has also practically, you know, not materialized, even though there are indications that that may come about. So you still find the reason why these guys went, you know, into the bush, and many of these things remain unaddressed. So what then is happening is that they still have a reason from their perspective to keep on, you know, fighting. Despite the fact that that is not justified under, you know, any reasonable narrative of the conflict. That was Andy Atta Asamoa, a researcher with the Institute for Security Studies in South Africa, talking to Joseho Dingake. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization, WHO, has kick-started a campaign to prevent outbreaks of cholera in temporary camps in South Sudan, currently housing thousands of people who have fled the brutal conflict in that country. For details on the cholera campaign, here's Dr. Abdinasir Abubakar of the WHO's Disease Surveillance and Response Team in South Sudan. Yes, it's right. WHO, in collaboration with the Minister of Health and other healthy cluster partners, actually have kick-started the oral cholera vaccination. And the rationale behind for this is, if you recall that, you know, since the conflict in South Sudan, there are quite a large number of displaced people. And many of them are living in the camps. Those camps are inside the UN compounds in major urban areas, in Juba, Malakal, Bor, Bentiu, and Awerial. And those IDBs actually, their living condition or the environment where they are living actually, it's very poor. When it comes to drinking water, sanitation, hygiene, all of those conditions which contributes the risk of cholera outbreak actually are available in those camps. Also, the humanitarian actors actually have done a great work on providing some of the basic social services, including sanitation, water, health, nutrition, but still there is a major gap. The area or the camps where these IDBs are currently living are very small camps which were not designed for the IDBs. And it's very congested, overcrowded, very poor living conditions, and most of these factories actually can contribute a potential risk of cholera outbreak. Is there any particular reason, Doctor, why you're targeting camps in Minkaman and Juba in the first phase of the campaign? Yes, indeed. During the planning, we have done what we call risk assessment, where we look all aspects of all factors that might influence this campaign. And the reason why we selected first, these are the major camps. In Minkaman, we have 94,000 people. And in Juba, we have around 43,000 people. And that's why we decided, and also the living conditions of this are actually worse than others, if you compare. The other reason is security reason and accessibility. During the planning, the accessibility of Bor and Malakal and Binti was not easy. And still, some of this area actually is not easy to access. That's why we agreed that at least Juba and Awer Minkaman are easy to access and the risk is very high and we put as a priority and first phase. Nevertheless, 
We are also planning to target also other camps within the other parts of the countries when the situation improves. What is required, in your view, for such a campaign to be effective? Well, what's required is, first of all, this oral cholera vaccination. We're not saying it will prevent 100%. First of all, the efficacy of this vaccination is up to 60 to 70%, which means the target population, when they receive two doses, the first dose they are receiving this week, and then the second dose they will receive after two weeks. When they receive those two doses, I think the population will be prevented for cholera outbreak 70%. And that's a very good and a high percentage, actually, if we compare the situation where we're in. What's involved is normally is, first, there are NGO partners who are implementing this. And also you need a large number of volunteers who will go house to house and also fix sites to give away this vaccination. And we need to make sure that everyone over one year of age should get this vaccination both doses during the campaigns, the first one and also the second one. But do people in these camps know what they need to know about cholera? You know, how to protect themselves from getting the disease, for instance? Indeed. I think before we made the final decision on cholera, there was a very intensive health education campaign for the last seven weeks where we are trying to educate the community on all the communicable diseases and how to prevent what needs to be done, not only cholera, but measles, meningitis, among other communicable diseases. There is intensive education campaigns, and if you look right now, the mortality rate for the camps, actually, if you compare last week and the previous week, the mortality rate has gone down almost to zero. Finally there, how does the WHO manage to carry out its work in this volatile situation? You're right, actually. The security situation, the accessibility is very volatile, and WHO, among other humanitarian actions, actually are trying their best to deliver the required, you know, life-saving services to those people who are in need. Uh, we have to work very closely with the peacekeeping mission. We have to work very closely with the government. We have to work very closely with the opposition, the area where they control. And we have to work every actor who can facilitate the movement of the humanitarian actors. Of course, sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes there's a security risk for our staff. But also our responsibility is we need to make every effort that we can save lives among those vulnerable groups who are in need of health services. That was Dr. Abdinasir Abubakar of the Disease Surveillance and Response Team at the World Health Organization in South Sudan, on the line from Juba, speaking to Elizabeth Mapari. Now send us your views on the passing of the anti-gay law in Uganda. Give us a call on plus two seven one two three nine five zero five one zero. Email us on info at channelafrica.org. Send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. Or you could get a hold of us at our Twitter handle, which is at Channel Africa One. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Uganda's President Yoweri Museveni has signed into law a bill toughening penalties for gay people and criminalizing those who do not report them. The Ugandan anti-gay bill sailed through Parliament in December last year after its architects agreed to drop an extremely controversial death penalty clause. 
the move defies warnings from the United States that relations could be complicated by the new rules. Museveni's signature will please a staunchly conservative local constituency that is vehemently opposed to homosexuality but risks alienating Western aid donors. Selina Dubong reports. President Yoweri Museveni signed the bill at his official residence in an event witnessed by government officials and journalists. Government officials applauded after he signed the bill that calls for first-time offenders to be sentenced to 14 years in jail. It also sets life imprisonment as the maximum penalty for a category of offenses called aggravated homosexuality, defined as repeated gay sex between consenting adults as well as acts involving a minor. It is able person or where one partner is infected with HIV. The bill is popular in Uganda, but international rights groups have condemned it as draconian in a country where homosexuality is already criminalized. These developments unfolded parallel to a consultative workshop on lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and intersex, broadly called LGBTI persons' rights, hosted in Johannesburg, South Africa. The country's Minister of Justice and Constitutional Development, John Jeffrey, says it cannot criticize what is happening in Uganda, but it can engage with that country. We don't practice megaphone diplomacy. Our our approach as far as foreign policy is to engage rather than to to condemn whether it is on on this issue or really any other issues. So we would want to engage with other countries on the continent on the issue rather than simply condemning is not going to really help much. Members of South Africa's LGBTI community attending the workshop also reacted to the news. I feel bad for them because countries like um, Uganda, they should learn from South Africa. Hey, I mean, South Africa is one of the developing countries, but then we far ahead from them, but then they should learn from us. It's, uh, it shouldn't be an issue anymore. I mean, we're here to say uh, they should accept us, not tolerate us, but they should accept us for who we are. It's a very sad situation, like knowing that they have signed the bill after what other countries have done and other state presidents have said to the president and then he continues to say that. Yeah, it's a very sad thing. I so, I, so, I so wish that the Ugandan LGBTI can come to the side because at least we have something better than them. And I just think that he's ignorant and he doesn't consider the people's feelings, you know. After all, Africa has, has a history of discrimination, the race and stuff. And to for them saying it's an African and all that, weren't we, the black people, considered not human and stuff? We were treated like animals like before. So I, I just think that he's inconsiderate and it's not just, it's just not fair. The attendees of this workshop voice to the deputy minister and his task team challenges they face on a day-to-day basis. Discrimination towards homosexual individuals is still rife amongst communities across the country. Access to basic services such as HIV testing and counseling and crime reporting are still challenges as these individuals have a double burden because of their sexual orientation. Speaking on the basis of anonymity, this individual draws a picture of what it is like to exist as a transgender person in a society of so-called normal individuals. I don't conform to any particular gender, although at times I would be more female 
or more male, but it's more difficult. So at the point where I become more male, people are very confused as to whether I'm male or female. I work in the mining industry at a training center. In the mining industry, they do not provide the necessary training to let people know that, yes, there are potentially LGBTI people who could be working in that industry and that removing stigma related to that, you know, so people aren't made aware that we even exist. It's, it's very masculine and you know because these policies were in place I, I couldn't imagine if, if it were a company that didn't have these policies in place the kind of reaction I would get. You know when I do for instance walk past a bunch of minor guys you do get comments saying that you know I, I, you know I'm a Stabane or uh, am I a man or am I a woman that's always the biggest question that gets asked. However, uh, you know, the more you get to do with gender issues, the more gender falls away. Male, female, it falls away completely. You, you don't have, those things become immaterial. All the viewpoints and suggestions on how to remedy challenges faced by the LGBTI community in South Africa will be compiled and handed over to the country's Justice and Constitutional Development Department. The Ugandan LGBTI community in the meantime will have to brace itself for what is to come. For Channel Africa, I am Selina Dobong in Johannesburg. As Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni signed an anti-gay bill into law, history was made in Kenya yesterday when hundreds of people staged peaceful protests in the capital Nairobi after launching what they described as a new international anti-gay group. The group has drafted a bill which is expected to be presented to Parliament to push for stiff prison sentences on convicted gays and lesbians. In Kenya's penal code, homosexuality Sexuality is an unnatural offence and carries a prison sentence of 14 years. James Shimanyula attended the launch and filed this report. The sound of whistles rent the air as hundreds of Kenyan anti-gay activists staged the protest marches on one of the edges of Nairobi's popular historic independence park. They are singing a song. What they are saying in Kiswahili is that uh, we are still fighting to eliminate gayism and we shall not allow gayism to continue. Now we are walking with them as they sing and as they move forward showing their banners. The message they are putting across in Kiswahili is that Africa, we do not allow gayism. Africa, you should not sleep. Let the battle against gayism continue. They sing as they carry billboards, placards, and red cards to signify that they are now giving the gays and lesbians a red card so that they can be sent off the field. This is how the chairman of the newly launched international anti-gay group Nderitu Njoka described gayism when he addressed local and international journalists in Nairobi. 
It is not only madness, but sinister crop of some men and women from all walks of life worldwide. It is destined to destroy the order of creation and the very tenant of morality. Its objectives are destined to sow seeds of mass destruction and depravity in moral society. Speaking about the anti-gay bill that his group has prepared to present to Kenya's Attorney General who will pass it on to Parliament for debate, Njoka, who is also chairperson of Kenya's Male Gender Empowerment Organization, said. The bill that we have drafted, the anti-gay bill, we are ready to submit it to, to Parliament and to the Attorney General of Kenya so that it can be legislated, it can be discussed in Parliament. Enough is enough. We are not going to accept gay rights in Kenya. If gays and lesbians are given rights, then that will be the end of the world. That is a weapon of mass destruction. The protest marches were watched by a cross-section of Kenyans. Hassan Otieno, a 26-year-old jobless man, had his mind on a message on the placard carried by a protester. Homosexuality is against African tradition taboo. I think the message that they are spreading is very important because right now, we, if you accept this thing, I think we'll be will not be well placed. We don't want it in Africa. We don't want it in Kenya. Daniel Baraka Owando, an accountant aged 39, cast his mind on African religious beliefs. In Africa, we believe in God. Most of us, we are Christian and Muslim, and we can't advocate for, for lesbian and gayism because, because now, if we are our parents were gayism, could I exist? That four-year-old Ibrahim Kamawe teacher cited the first book of the Bible, which highlights the creation of man and woman. From the book of Genesis, we see that God created Adam and Eve, and not Adam and Adam or Eve with Mary. Having heard voices of men, I luckily caught up with the 42-year-old housewife Mukami Wambui, who surprised me by bursting into a loud but sarcastic guffaw before saying in Kiswahili. These guys, it looks like they have missed the correct direction, Wambui said. The government should remove these people once and for all, Wambui continued to tell me. Such evil things, Wambui said, should not happen here in Kenya. As some Kenyans expressed strong anti-gay sentiments, others stood firm and proud to be gays and lesbians. Let's hear 28-year-old Gremo Juma, who prefers to be called suspect, a name he coined on the stage as a musician. Despite the fact that it is illegal in our country, we are not who we are by choice. We are who we are because of Jah himself. Yeah, and we cannot deny that. Natalia Muli, a hairdresser in her early 30s, was remarkably candid and to the point when she said, I'm born gay, yeah, exactly. And I'm so proud to be gay. Out of Kenya's population of 40 million, nearly 3 million are gays or lesbians. Most Kenyans, like their neighbors in Tanzania and Uganda, rarely talk about gay relationships, which they see as taboo and illegal.
Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. And Musa up next with the headlines. Good morning. The United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Navi Pillay, denounces an anti-homosexuality law in Uganda. Christian militiamen in the Central African Republic issue an ultimatum to Muslims taking refuge in a church telling them to either leave the country or face death. And Libyan police find seven Egyptian Christians shot execution style on a beach in the eastern part of the country, marking the second such killing since the beginning of the year. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. A new law in Uganda which imposes life sentences in prison for homosexuality has been condemned by the United Nations. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Navi Pillay, said the legalized legislation would would mean that lesbians, gay, bisexual and transgender LGBT people would face institutionalized discrimination discrimination. She added that the law violated fundamental human rights. Daniel Dickinson asked Charles Radcliffe from the office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights for more details about the law. This basically takes a bad British Victorian law from the 1860s and makes it much worse. Uh, Uganda already criminalized same-sex relationships with 14 years in prison. This law will put people into prison for life for having a a same-sex relationship. It also introduces all sorts of other penalties uh, for people who are seen to so-called promote homosexuality. That could include rights advocates. What's the High Commissioner's reaction the High Commissioner Navi Pillay has denounced this law as being fundamentally contrary to international human rights commitments that Uganda's made, and also contrary to the Ugandan constitution, which guarantees that all Ugandans will be treated equally and be protected from discrimination. She's said it will institutionalize discrimination and encourage violence, and also points out that it will hinder the effort to curb HIV. I mean, who's going to go to see a doctor and get tested if by doing that they might risk being turned in and imprisoned for life? Do LGBT people really face additional danger because of this law? Undoubtedly, yes. I mean, already there's a lot of hostility and stigma in uh, Uganda towards LGBT people. We've seen attacks on them as well, violence. We've seen in in another country, Nigeria, which recently introduced very similar legislation, mob attacks, mobs kind of setting on gay people in the street and attacking them. And that's the kind of thing we very much hope we won't see in Uganda, but we're all worried about that. This is taking place in Uganda, and you just mentioned Nigeria. Is this going to cause other countries in Africa to tighten up their anti-homosexuality legislation? There are a few countries that have been talking about doing this. Now, Uganda, of course, this didn't come out of the blue. This law in Uganda was introduced in 2009. It's been making very slow progress through Parliament. We've seen it coming for a long time, and everyone's been trying to to stop it and, and, and prevent that happening. Nigeria also had this very long legislative process that led to its law. There are a few other countries where there are some politicians that are trying to kind of use this as a populist thing to get attention. 
but I, there doesn't seem to be a kind of broad set movement across Africa. Of course, most African countries already criminalize homosexuality using laws that they inherited from the British Empire. But, uh, you know, there's just a few countries that are holding out. And you have to stand back and realize that globally, the trends are in the other direction. It's a trend towards equality. What can the UN do in these countries to reverse the tide of discrimination? Of course, on this issue, as in other issues, the UN's power is limited. It's the power of persuasion. Uh, and so UN senior leaders from Ban Ki-moon down are engaging with governments, trying to uh, encourage them to introduce the necessary reforms. You know, these countries have all signed international human rights treaties. They are required to protect everyone from discrimination, including on the grounds of their sexual orientation. And uh, so the UN has its ways. You know, there are reports, there are recommendations, there is scrutiny, there will be dialogue, there will be discussions. All of that is focused really on the government's but what we recognise is there has to be a process that's kind of grassroots-led, that we need to support the activists on the ground. We need public debate, public information, public uh, education to really not just change the laws, but to change people's hearts and minds as well. And that takes longer, of course. In fact, uh, last year in July, the High Commissioner for Human Rights launched an unprecedented UN public education campaign. She did it with Desmond Tutu standing at her side. And we have a host of celebrities from all regions signed up. And that's because we believe that we need to really support a public debate. We need to open, spe open people's minds, help them to rethink their attitudes on this issue. And to do that, we need sound, credible public information. And we want the UN's voice to come through in that. And by doing that, we hope to support local activists on the ground as well. That was Charles Radcliffe from the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights talking to Daniel Dickinson. We welcome your feedback on Africa Rise and Shine, so today we invite you, our listeners, to send us your views on the passing of the anti-gay law in Uganda. You can call us on plus two seven one two three nine five zero five one zero. You can email us on info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. You can also get a hold of us at our Twitter handle, which is at Channel Africa One. Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Now, let's go back in time. Today in 1977, angered by denunciations from U.S. former President uh, Jimmy Carter, Ugandan leader Idi Amin takes 240 Americans hostage, sending a letter to Carter telling him to stop interfering in Ugandan affairs. But six days later, Amin frees the hostages, mostly pilots and airline workers. In our next story, a forensic audit into the massive plunder of the Malawi government coffers has uncovered that over 30 million U.S. dollars was looted by politicians, businesspersons and civil servants. The audit, conducted by British accounting firm Baker Tilly, covered the period between April 2012 and September 2013. The report was handed over to the country's Ministry of Finance last Friday. George Mhango has more from Blantai. From the report, it has been established that some of the companies were formed early last year in a bid to be used as conduits in as far as stealing public money is concerned. 
Of the $14 million cash embezzled from government coffers, $12 million was stolen through the Ministry of Tourism, Wildlife and Culture that was linked with the purchase of the disowned cash kit buses. $10 million from the Office of the President and Cabinet OPC and $360,000 from the Ministry of Local Government and over $190,000 from an unknown government department. As it stands now, the anti-graft body, the Anti-Corruption Bureau, ACB, Malay Police Service, MPS, and the Director of Public Prosecutions, DPP, have all been offered the full port for them to cross-check against ongoing investigations. Christopher Nyirongo, one of the taxpayers, shares his views on the audit report. It, it will have a, a big effect on the outcome of the May 20 election. Was, for example, uh, some of the people that were involved in this cash gate report, uh, cash gate thing, members of the pe- People's Party, that's the ruling party, one of the officials actually bought a lot of vehicles for the PP. There have been calls that uh, those vehicles should go back to, 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 or should go to police so that those vehicles should be impounded. What's happening now? They are still being used by the PP. Peter Mofolo further explains. What we want is action from the government because it has a tendency of shooting those who are in power. We have seen that happen. For example, many people who were mentioned in the report have not been arrested to date. This is unfortunate. The report has also confirmed suspicions that from the time the theft was discovered in September following the shooting of the then Minister of Finance Budget Director Pompeo, attempts were made to delete transactions and erase all records of wrongdoing by some individuals in government, reads the report in part. Overall, we have noted funding misappropriation and theft of government of Malawi funds. We have seen funds being transferred between unrated companies, individuals withdrawing funds from unconnected organizations and inflated prices, petrol companies with limited or no trading history and very large cash withdrawals. We do not believe the receivers of these funds are therefore the ultimate beneficiary in all cases. Blunter-based business commentator come economist Innocent Helema says the development has dented Malawi's image in the face of donors. It actually uh, gives a reflection that most systems in Malawi are not performing. When you look at the Reserve Bank of Malawi, the Auditor General, the National Audit Office, uh, the Office of the President, Ministers, the whole system, uh, one would actually say, uh, is down. We have actually failed, whether by omission or commission, we have actually failed to detect this fraud. Auditors have since said these figures are likely to increase upon more investigations. The report also says commercial banks were complicit in the theft and they allowed cash withdrawals over the limit in a short time. The report has since recommended that more investigations are needed and these should be extended to international bank transfers. The Anti-Corruption Bureau and police have declined to issue a statement on the matter for fear of jeopardizing court processes. So far, over 70 cases are in court following arrests and revelations of the theft. That reports by George Mhango from Blantyre. 
Rwanda's Directorate General of Immigration and Immigration has started capturing biometrics of all foreigners in Rwanda in order for them to be issued with electronic resident ID cards. The exercise kicked off in the capital Kigali but will be rolled out by to other areas across the country. Foreigners have welcomed the move saying it will enable them to access different services faster such as banking and acquiring driving permits. Channel Africa Silvanas Karamera has more from Kigali. The new identification card for the foreigners is identical to the national ID card given to Rwandan citizens with a specification electronic foreign ID cards. It comes to replace the previous used green card. Father Mlenga Christian, a Zambian national, was delighted by the news and said the ID card will make them feel more welcome in Rwanda. I am here in Rwanda since 2008. The green card which we renew after two years, after two years to have a visa, residence visa, how this document will help us to be more comfortable and continue our services here in Rwanda. Mami Rudasingwa, a Japanese married to a Rwandan, believes the ID card will play a role in safeguarding the country's security. Uh, I think it's better to control for the security. Maybe, you know, these days many, many foreigners can do something wrong, something bad, so it, it will be better to control. But Mrs. Edei from Nigeria looks forward to faster service delivery and relieve them from carrying a passport all the time. Definitely it's going to help people not be not to be carrying their passports around. Then you have an ID to go with electronic, which even if you misplace it you can still get another one. But the issue of getting another passport will take you for a while, so it's a good improvement. Mugabo Bosco, the head of field inspection and enforcement, at the Directorate General of Im- and Immigration clarified that the ID card will be valid the same period as the visa issued to the foreigners. Validity depends on the validity of your permit to stay in Rwanda. If it is one year, it will be one year. If it is two years, it goes for two years. So it goes as per the permit that you're given. And who are entitled to getting it? All foreigners who are residing or working or have any other business doing in Rwanda are entitled. Not those who come, for example, for six months? Those for visiting are not issued the ID, foreigners' ID cards. The foreigners' ID card will cost 5000 equivalent to 8 to $9 US dollars, but will not be permitted as a travel document, as is the case for Rwandan. Ugandan and Kenyan citizens. In 2012, the population of registered foreign nationals hit 12,000 of foreign residents who registered for the green card are the ones whose biometric data will be taken until the 20th of March 2014. Silvanos Channel Africa News, Kigali. Tabi Solihuku up next with our economics update. A Nigerian court has issued an order on the security agencies barring them from arresting suspended Central Bank Governor Lamido Sanusi. This after he was briefly detained and his passport seized at the airport. Justice Buba Ibrahim issued the order on Friday after Sanusi complained that his detention had breached his right to freedom of movement. President Goodluck Jonathan suspended Sanusi, an outspoken critic of government's record on corruption, citing acts of financial recklessness. The Zimbabwean government has resolved to begin auctioning diamonds mined in Chiazwa in the second half of this year. 
It is part of measures to realize huge profits from the sale of the precious stones, which are presently being exported in raw form. Mines and Mining Development Minister Walter Chitakwa says the country would, after drawing lessons from Antwerp auctions, set up a similar system. Chitakwa maintains the initiative will also ensure the beneficiation of the diamonds. The African Development Bank has launched the African Information Highway platform. Over the years, many African countries have significantly scaled up their data collection efforts, but challenges still remain with regard to the timely dissemination of the data to users. Ndanta Masangu has more. The African Information Highway platform seeks to significantly increase access to quality data for managing and monitoring development results in African countries. It seeks to create a one-stop common platform for reliable and timely development data. Professor Mtulimnube, Vice President and Chief Economist of the African Development Bank, says the initiative presents a unique opportunity for the bank to take the lead in the implementation and promotion of international statistical standards across all countries in the region and in enhancing the quality of the data disseminated by African countries. Economists warn that South Africans should get used to petrol being expensive. This is the price of petrol in the southern African nation is set to increase by 30 South African cents a litre next month. Chief Economist at Efficient Group is David Wood. We all know that Rand has been taking a bit of a hammering also the last couple of months. So the dual effect of these two changes is that the petrol price will go up and the increase will be between 30 and 35 cents a litre. Unfortunately, it will come during a time when inflationary pressures are building up and during a time when there are many other price increases as well. We know, for instance, that electricity prices have gone up quite substantially and we know, for instance, that toll roads have been implemented and the like. And finally, the president of Ghana, John Mahama Dramani, is to unveil economic reforms as a free-failing currency sparks frustration over living costs. Ghana's economy, backed by gold, cocoa and oil exports, has soared in recent years. But the CD currency has lost nearly a quarter of its value since last year. Analysts put the drop down to high deficits, a 28% decline in the gold price and the withdrawal of stimulus measures by the U.S. Federal Reserve that has hit emerging market currencies worldwide. Financial indicators at this hour. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.90 South African rands at 8.84 Botswana Pulas and at 5.75 Zambian Guachas. It's also trading at 0.60 to the British pound and at 0.72 to the euro. Looking at commodities market, gold $1,332, platinum $1,482 an ounce. Brand crude oil 109.56 cents a barrel. Economic update. Thank you, Tabiso. And Figile Lingwati up next with our sports update. In our sports update this hour, we're starting off with football news. Zambia's bid 
to host the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations will face a reality check in July when a five-member Confederation of African Football, CAF team, arrives to inspect the facilities. CAF appointed a group of experts to check on the preparedness of the six candidates competing for the staging of the 2019-2021 AFCON tournament. The CAF team has executive committee members Amadou Diakite of Mali and Chad Adumi Jibrini. The inspectors will kick off their tour of duty in Ivory Coast and Guinea in April before shifting to Algeria and Cameroon in May. Zambia's facilities and those for the Democratic Republic of Congo will be inspected in July. The voting to determine the hosts for the 2019 and 2021 AFCON events will be conducted during the CAF Executive Committee meeting in September. And in local football, South African Premiership side Orlando Paris captain Lakila Khwati hopes his side will get their APSA Premiership campaign back on track when they visit Mamelodi Sundowns at Loftus Stadium in Pretoria tonight. Pirates have failed to win any of their last three league matches, losing to Sundowns and Polukwane City before playing to a nil-all draw against Ajax Cape Town. The first meeting between the two sides ended 1-0 in favour of Sundowns, with Trompo Kekana's powerful strike deciding the match. Meanwhile, Sundowns' leading goalscorer, Katlako Mashiko, who has scored seven goals in 20 appearances this season, suffered a groin injury against Ajax last Friday and will be out of action for six weeks. Another striker, Kathbeth Malajila, will miss the Bucks encounter because of a hamstring injury. The Zimbabwe international is expected back in three weeks' time. Barely less than three weeks ago, Sundowns defeated Pirates around the stadium by one goal to nil. But Musimani says there's still a long way to go. Same game, different place, different mood, different uh, place, obviously, different personnel for us, unfortunately. And what is the game in hand when you have a lot of pirates? And what's the game in hand when you have the vets who are fourth in the law or third? What is the game in hand? Those games in hand don't work. So you have to do what you have to do. You have to, you have to go on. And I told you, it might, you might win against Orlando Pirates in Orlando Stadium and draw against Marisbeck in Loftus. Eh? And Chiefs might win against Sandhouse in Loftus and draw against Marisbeck in Heribuala. So these things, there's no formula. So you keep going. You just have to keep, it's, it's a long way, believe me. In athletics, two-time Olympic 200-meter champion Veronica Campbell-Brown says she has been cleared to race again by the Court of Arbitration for Sport. A 31-year-old Jamaican has not competed since she tested positive for a banned diuretic last May. Campbell-Brown was provisionally suspended by the Jamaica Athletics Administrative Association after failing a test at the Jamaica Invitation Meeting on the 4th of May. And finally, with golf news, Scotland's Daniel Young opened with a 6 under par 66 to lead the first round of the qualifying in the Nassanlam South African Amateur Championship at Hamara's Golf Club. But it is Jovan Rebula who is leading the, the pack after qualifying rounds on Monday. Ashla Flesmas reports. George amateur Yuvan Rebula was so inspired by his uncle Ernie Els' performance in the WGC Accenture Match Play Championship that it carried him to a one-stroke victory in the 36-hole qualifying tournament for the Sunlam SA Amateur at Hermanus Golf Club on Monday. Rebula led the qualifying for the country's top amateur tournament when he followed up his first round 70 with a second round of 66 to top the leaderboard on 8 under par and win the Proudfoot Trophy. But it was a few late nights spent watching his uncle Ernie that 
really inspired Rabula. I was very excited watching him throughout this match play and uh, honestly I'm very glad for him to play good golf at it now and putting much better and I might SMS him later on tonight but um, honestly just him also having a good tournament and me having a good tournament as well makes me really satisfied. The top 64 players qualified for the main match play competition which starts on Tuesday. Ursula Flismus, Hermanis. At the Sport News this hour, Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. A new report details human rights abuses in South Sudan. UN condemns Uganda for pass, passing controversial anti-gay law. And forensic report reveals massive looting of public funds in Malawi. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutu Ramagaza, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org. Follow us on Twitter at Channel Africa One or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Kaifa Simenia.
He's gotta keep it in 